When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Happening now, breaking news. The first civilian evacuations from Gaza into Egypt since the start of the Israel-Hamas war. Americans among those leaving through the critical Rafah border crossing as part of a deal that could allow thousands of other people to escape the fighting. In Gaza, new scenes of destruction after an Israeli airstrike rocks the same refugee camp that was hit a day earlier. Israel standing firmly in defending the attacks as vital to destroying Hamas amid mounting concerns in the Middle East and in the United States about the civilian death toll. Also tonight, Donald Trump Jr. takes the stand in the $250 million civil fraud trial against the Trump family business. We're going to tell you what he said under oath in New York. And in Florida, the judge in former President Trump's classified documents case is suggesting that the trial could be postponed. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer in Tel Aviv, Israel, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. Let's get right to the breaking news on the first evacuation of foreign nationals and other civilians from Gaza into Egypt. Officials say hundreds of people have gotten out, including Americans, and hundreds more are expected to follow in the immediate hours ahead. Our correspondents are covering all the developments in the Israel-Hamas war from multiple angles and locations. First, Let's go to CNN's Becky Anderson. Uh, she's joining us right now from Doha, Qatar. Becky, Qatar was instrumental in securing the deal that made these evacuations possible. That's what we're told. Update our viewers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some hard-earned success for the Qatar-led mediation between Israel, Hamas, Egypt in coordination with the United States today. To describe these talks as complicated these talks have been going on now for some three weeks would be an understatement wolf but today relief at least for some escape from a living nightmare for the first time since the war between israel and hamas began foreign passport holders are able to leave gaza through the rafa border the sole crossing with egypt Equally important, dozens of critically injured Palestinians allowed to leave, some to be treated in a field hospital opened in Sinai, about 15 kilometers away, others being sent directly to hospitals across Egypt. 
But with continued intense bombardment and more than 20,000 injured, much more is needed. We want hundreds of those injured to receive treatment abroad as all the hospitals have exhausted their capacities in every respect. Medical supplies, medicines for wars and burns have run out as well. At least two Americans have already made their way out of Gaza and are now in Egypt. Other officials in Washington hope up to 5,000 foreign nationals, including American citizens will pass through the Hamas-controlled border station and make their way into Egypt over the coming days. It's all part of a deal mediated by Qatar between Israel, Hamas and Egypt in coordination with the United States. The small Gulf country is uniquely placed to play a big diplomatic role. It's a strong U.S. ally and home to a major U.S. military base, while also hosting Hamas's political leadership. Just this week, it welcomed the head of Israel's intelligence agency, David Barnier, and the Iranian foreign minister. Well, against the backdrop of ongoing talks to release the more than 200 Israeli hostages being held by Hamas and other militant groups in Gaza, officials in Qatar say those hostage talks were made more difficult when Israel launched its ground incursion last week. Sources close to the talks tell me there is nothing yet to report on a deal, but the negotiations, they say, are ongoing. With the first foreign passport holders arriving in Egypt and hundreds more expected to join them in the coming days, there's hope yet that diplomatic efforts can save some lives, even as the deadly war shows no sign of stopping. And Wolf, this is being described as a comprehensive plan. As I reported, the, the hope is that all foreign nationals, dual citizens who want to leave will be able to leave. And as far as U.S. officials are concerned, that includes some 400 uh, Americans, uh, 400 U.S. citizens and their family members. That would add up to about a thousand um, people uh, leaving Gaza getting into Egypt and then being able to move on. Many of those, of course, uh, wanting to get home to the States. That is the hope at this point. Wolf. Well, let's certainly hope that happens. Becky Anderson reporting for us. Becky, thank you very, very much. I want to get an update now on efforts to get more of those Americans out of Gaza right now. CNN's MJ Lee is joining us from the White House. MJ, President Biden just spoke out about this a short while ago. Update our viewers. Yeah, well, certainly a little bit of good news to celebrate after what has been a very dark few weeks. The president himself confirming that the first group of U.S. nationals had left Gaza and are now in Egypt. And he confirmed that the process of getting these Americans and wounded Palestinians and other foreign nationals out of Gaza will take uh, take place in a matter of stages and over the course of multiple days. Uh, Becky mentioned this, but the State Department has been clear that there are some 400 uh, American citizens in Gaza who have expressed interest in leaving and their family members total some 1,000 people. And that is in addition to some 5,000 other foreign nationals that are expected to try to leave. Uh, the president just saying in remarks that his administration has been working around the clock to lead to this arrangement. This is what he said. This is the result of intense and urgent American diplomacy with our partners in the region.
I personally spent a lot of time speaking with the Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel and the President Sisi of Egypt and others to make sure that we could open this access for people to get out. And just to give you a better sense of those weeks of diplomatic efforts to get to this deal, uh, what we have learned is that one thing that Hamas had very much been pushing for uh, was for wounded Palestinians to be able to leave Gaza, but that notably they had wanted some of their own fighters to be in that mix and that that was a specific demand that was denied. And that as far as the Egyptians were concerned, uh, they had a lot of worries about the idea of Palestinians entering Egypt and then permanently staying. And so that was a conversation that U.S. officials had a lot with their uh, Egyptian counterparts. And they also wanted to make sure that as these people were starting to come into their country, that they could really vet every single person that was coming in. Uh, Wolf, I also just wanted to know uh, something noteworthy that the president just said in Minnesota. Uh, he said that Israel continues to have a right to defend itself, but that it needs to continue adhering to the international laws. And he said, quote, every innocent life is a tragedy. Uh, this, of course, is incredibly noteworthy given uh, the growing outcry that we have seen in light of these Israeli airstrikes that hit this refugee camp in northern Gaza. Wolf. All right, MJ, thank you very much. MJ Lee at the White House for us. There's more breaking news we're following in the war zone. A second blast at Gaza's largest refugee camp in as many days, both due to Israeli airstrikes. The IDF insisting the attacks were targeting Hamas amid growing evidence of civilian casualties in the process. CNN's Nick Robertson is on the ground for us near the Gaza border. He's joining us live right now from Sderot in Israel. Nick, give us the latest uh, that the new strike at this refugee camp as it developed and give us more on Israel's escalating ground war that's unfolding now. Yeah, this second strike, Wolf, the IDF say that they had precise intelligence data um, pointing to a Hamas command and control facility uh, at that in the Jabalia refugee camp, and that's why they targeted it. They've reminded us again that Hamas stays and hides behind civilians. They've reminded us again that they've told and warned the civilians in the north and center of Gaza to move to the south where they'll be safer, of course. Of course, many of those civilians are confused and worried and unsure about which routes to take and how they should get there. They're worried that they could end up uh, falling in front of, uh, you know, an Israeli military unit on the move. And, and to that point, we've heard from the commander of the uh, Steel Division, which is the commander of the, of the forces that are right there inside Gaza. He said, we are at the gates of Gaza City right now. Uh, the Minister of Defense has described it in, in, in even more blunt detail, saying that it is fierce urban combat inside Gaza City that the troops are facing right now, describing it as involving a lot of Hamas's use of anti-tank weapons. And this does seem to be leading in part to the death and injury of, uh, of troops. We know of uh, 16 IDF soldiers that have died over the past 24 hours, 15 of those uh, in Gaza. And, and I think perhaps an indication of what the troops are being prepared for came from their commander, uh, General Halevi, the commander of the IDF, in a letter 
to all his troops saying, we are in the middle of a war. It's going to be a long war. We're going to fight to the end. We're fighting for our country, for our values. But he made the very clear point that you are in the enemy's territory. You are on the enemy's ground now and we'll be using intense uh, fire to, to support you. But it's a very clear indication uh, for these troops going in that their commanders uh, from the battlefield commanders right the way to the Minister of Defence really understand that the fight is going to get tough and intense as they get into these streets in and around Gaza City, Wolf. Yeah, by all accounts, it looks like it's going to heat up dramatically in the coming days and weeks. Nick Robertson reporting for us. Thank you very much. Joining us now, Barack Ravid, the political and foreign policy reporter for Axios. Uh, Barack, thanks so much for joining us. As you know, the IDF bombed the Jabalia refugee camp for the second straight day. Israel says it was targeting Hamas terrorists who were in that camp. Eyewitnesses report that the first blast also killed many Palestinian civilians. Can Israel credibly say it's minimizing civilian deaths when it's striking a refugee camp, a very crowded refugee camp? Hi, Wolf. Well, I think that that definitely raises a lot of uh, a lot of questions. And uh, at least today, the IDF uh, spokesman, uh, Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, when he briefed uh, foreign correspondents, uh, he claimed that the reason that Israel is attacking in this area was because there's some sort of a regional headquarters uh, for Hamas and the Jabalia uh, refugee camp. But that's at the end of the day, uh, even if that's uh, uh, the case, um, you know, he still admitted that civilians were uh, were hit in this uh, in this uh, airstrike. He didn't know to he didn't know to to um, confirm how many civilians, but even he admitted that civilians were hurt. Are there concerns in Israel, and you do a lot of reporting, obviously, about the mounting civilian deaths and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza? Yeah, I think that what the Israeli government understood, maybe a bit late, but it did understand, it does understand it right now, is that the humanitarian situation in Gaza is directly connected to its ability to continue to have uh, support from its allies around the world, especially from the United States. This is why, for example, um, the uh, evacuation today of pal wounded Palestinians to Egypt was something that was very important to Israel, to the point that the Israeli government agreed to commit to Egypt, to the U.S., and to other allies around the world that any Palestinian and any wounded Palestinian that would leave the Gaza Strip would be allowed to go back after the war. Jordan announced today uh, that it's immediately recalling its ambassador to Israel in the wake of the strike in Jabalia, the refugee camp. How is all of this impacting Israel's diplomatic situation, not only in the region, but around the world? Well, I think that what we see in the last few days is growing international pressure. You saw uh, three countries in Latin America announcing that they're cutting ties with Israel or recalling their ambassadors. We, thought, we saw the Jordanian statement today about recalling its ambassador. Although, Wolf, I got to tell you that me, I personally thought that the Jordanians would recall their ambassador uh, uh, long before. Uh, and the fact that it took them more than three weeks also tells you uh, something. But I think it's clear that the, the, uh, as this ground operation continues and as you'll have more civilian casualties and the humanitarian situation in Gaza continues to deteriorate, Israel's diplomatic situation will get much, much more difficult.
Yeah, I suspect you're right. Barack Ravid, thank you very much for that update. Thank you. Wolf. Coming up, there's a lot more we're following. We'll have more live reports from here in Israel, more on the devastation after the IDF confirms it struck a refugee camp for the second time since yesterday, saying it was targeting major Hamas fighters. And a son of former President Trump is on the witness stand testifying in his own defense. Lots going on. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. We'll have much more on all the breaking news here in Israel. That's coming up. But there's other breaking news we're following back in the United States, including the eldest son of former President Donald Trump testifying under oath today in the civil fraud trial against the family and their businesses. Donald Trump Jr. was pressed by prosecutors on his involvement in financial documents right at the center of this lawsuit. Joining us now, CNN legal analyst Norm Eisen and Elliot Williams. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Norm, let me start with you. Donald Trump Jr. is trying to distance himself from the organization's financial statements, saying he leaves these matters to his accountants. What do you make of that? Well, the center of uh, the New York State case, Wolf, is that in his roles in the business and as a trustee uh, of these enterprises, he can't pass the buck completely. He has some legal responsibility to make sure they're accurate. And of course, we've seen a ton of evidence that they were not accurate. So I think today, New York State set him up and uh, he was already visibly uncomfortable with some of the questions. We're going to see the payoff tomorrow. Probably not so good for Trump Jr. or for the Trump family standing in this case. Well, let me follow on that point with uh, Elliot. What risks, Elliot, is Donald Trump Jr. taking by testifying today under oath? Well, anytime a witness testifies under oath, uh, well, uh, they run the risk of saying something that can trip them up. Also note that Donald Trump Jr. has given a prior deposition in this case. So he has provided testimony already. If he contradicts himself or says something that doesn't quite gel with what he said uh, in his deposition, that's certainly something that the judge could find, uh, speaks to his credibility and so on. So it's always risky. The other thing is that um, it's one thing to answer questions from your own attorney, statements uh, or testimony that you prepared, questioning that you'd rehearsed. It's another thing when a prosecutor that you haven't met before uh, takes a crack at you and can really pin you down on your prior statements or, uh, you know, sort of other questions they may have about you uh, or your history. And so uh, it remains to be seen how tomorrow's testimony will go. But uh, that's when uh, the unpredictable questioning might come up. Yeah, good, good point. Uh, Norm, Ivanka Trump is appealing a judge's ruling, ordering her to testify in this uh, civil fraud trial next week. How do you see this playing out? Uh I think she's unlikely to be successful uh, in that appeal, Wolf. It is true that she was dismissed from the case because her management responsibilities uh, in these businesses came outside of the statute of limitations. But she still has uh, firsthand evidence uh, about these gaps in the valuation 
uh, where uh, they shift. Sometimes they're many times the actual value of the properties. Uh, the judge and uh, the state are entitled to that testimony. She also could be potentially a very damaging witness against her father and her brothers and the Trump organization. And I think she is going to be forced to testify. We shall see. Uh, down in Florida, uh, Elliot Judge Eileen Cannon is signaling she may postpone Trump's trial in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case after Trump's attorneys raised concerns about the amount of time they would have to prepare given Trump's other trials. Is that a valid concern? What's your assessment? Absolutely, it's valid, uh, uh, Wolf. You know, I think we got to get over the charade. And I think uh, Norm actually disagrees with me on this point. We've talked about it uh, before, but that that they can credibly get that case to trial in a matter of months. When a matter, a criminal matter deals with sensitive information, classified documents, defense-related information, uh, there's got to be a lot of litigation back and forth over how to put that information in front of a jury. And uh, I've, I have long said it, 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 it was very ambitious to think that, that case could be brought to trial by May. I don't think it's unreasonable. Um, certainly, it's not a slam dunk. It could go either way. But but I do think it's, it's an entirely a fair question to ask whether you could bring a complicated national security case up to trial in just a matter of months. Yeah, clearly uh, Trump wants to delay it as much as possible, including after the presidential election. Norm, if Judge Cannon does delay the case, do you think there's any chance it could still happen before next year's presidential election? Uh, I, I do, Wolf. Uh, the case is currently set for May. Uh, the Mar-a-Lago documents case is not uh, an unusually complex one. Um, and we've seen national security cases like the Paul Manafort case move on as fast or even faster timetables. Uh, the, the judge, if she relaxes that May deadline, she could move it uh, to the summer. Um, it, it is important to get that trial in before the presidential season starts in earnest. She'll know more about whether Donald Trump is or is not uh, the candidate uh, of the Republican Party by then. So I do think it is possible to get it in. If you compare Judge Chutkin-Wolf, she's brooking no delay. She's not accepting these excuses. She's uh, pushing that case forward, the federal January 6th case for March. And uh, that is the way to manage a trial docket, in my view. Interesting. Uh, Norm Eisen and Elliot Williams, guys, thank you very, very much. Lots more news coming up here in the Situation Room. Up next, we're learning more about the impact of a second Israeli airstrike at Gaza's largest refugee camp. Residents and doctors are speaking out. And as some uh, U.S. citizens and other civilians have been evacuated from Gaza today, I'll speak to a Palestinian-American woman who's still stuck there inside Gaza, trying desperately to get out. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. We're back with more breaking news here in the Middle East. Palestinians speaking out about the Israeli airstrikes that have left large parts of a Gaza refugee camp in ruins. Israel confirming the second attack in two days, defending it as necessary to take out leaders of Hamas. CNN's Nada Bashir is following it all for us. She's joining us live from Jerusalem right now. Nada, a lot of very disturbing images from that refugee camp are coming in. Absolutely. We've been seeing those horrifying videos, both from this latest airstrike on the Jabalia refugee camp and, of course, the aftermath of yesterday's airstrike, two airstrikes taking place in less than 24 hours. And as we know, this is one of the largest, most densely populated refugee camps. It is now really an urban community. It has been for many years now, and it is a home to more than 100,000 people, according to the UN. So you can imagine the sheer devastation that has been wrought by this latest round of airstrikes. We've been seeing the videos, we've been hearing from medics on the ground. They have described this as a nightmare. Take a look. Chaos and horror at Gaza's Jabalia refugee camp. Wounded children rushed to nearby ambulances. The latest casualties of Israel's relentless aerial bombardment. This densely populated neighborhood gripped by panic and sheer disbelief. A second Israeli airstrike in less than 24 hours. I lost my whole family, Abdel Karim says, holding a list of those killed just today. My sister's house was struck with her children inside. My brother's house too, with all of his children. There is no one left except for me and my younger brother. They were innocent. What did they do to deserve this? Israel's defense force says it was targeting a Hamas command and control complex in Jabalia. Hamas fighters said to be among those killed. But Jabalia is home to more than 100,000 civilians, according to the UN. And while the full extent of the civilian death toll remains unclear at this stage, Gaza's civil defense authority has described this latest disaster as a massacre, with more casualties and more fatalities added to the list of hundreds said to have been killed or wounded in Tuesday's airstrike. This situation is beyond belief. Many have been killed, bodies have been left burned and charred by the airstrike, this doctor says. There isn't a hospital in the world that could cope with this kind of situation. We're having to treat patients on the floor and in corridors. The scale of the destruction at Jabalia is difficult to grasp. Many residents are still buried beneath the blackened rubble. Rescue workers and civilians dig side by side, desperate to find survivors. This house had 15 people in it, but we still haven't been able to find any of them. 
Hassan Ahmed says. We have no equipment. We are digging alone. Northern Gaza continues to come under heavy bombardment. Its residents warned by Israel to evacuate southwards. But airstrikes continue to rain down across both central and southern Gaza too. And for the more than two million Palestinians living under an Israeli blockade, the fear is that there is nowhere safe to turn. And look, Wolf, we have heard widespread condemnation from rights groups over the continued bombardment of the Gaza Strip, the mounting civilian death toll. Just in the last few hours, we have heard uh, reiterated condemnation from the UN's Human Rights Office. Let me just quickly read you uh, what they've said. Given the high number of civilian casualties and the scale of destruction following Israeli airstrikes on the Jabalia refugee camp, we have serious concerns that these are disproportionate attacks that could amount to war crimes. That is the message from the UN's Human Rights Office. It is a message that has been echoed by rights groups across the board. Wolf. Nada Bashir reporting from Jerusalem. Thank you very much. Uh, as this war rages in Gaza, some Americans just got out in this first wave of civilian evacuations that took place today. But others are still anxiously trying to evacuate. Joining us now on the phone from Gaza, Palestinian-American uh, Lena Busiso. Lena, thank you so much for joining us. I understand you've just heard from the U.S. State Department. What are they saying about when you and your family will be able to pass through that Rafah border crossing gate into Egypt? Well, it's really unclear, Wolf. Um, we get our hopes up because we receive emails from State Department saying that we can departure and leave. And then going four times to the border and finding that the border is closed. I get my hopes up. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. We have the opportunity to be going back up there to the border and trying our attempt to leave. So we're just worried and concerned. Um, I felt that my country had abandoned me and my family. It's been a horrifying nightmare. We get our hopes up. We go to the border. Sometimes it's getting bombed as we're there. Warning bombs for people to just leave and go back to navigate back home. And it's just been a living nightmare. It, everybody's in fear. We see all the de destruction, the killing, the innocent lives that have been taken. It's just horrifying. And after tomorrow, evidently, we can leave to the crossing, but I'm waiting for a list of names, and um, it's not updated yet. So there's a list of names that people who are to be able to pass through the crossing have to wait and see if their name is on that list to make it through the border. So, so Lena, um, let me ask you, if I can, what exactly does this latest email that you just received from the State Department say? Can you share that with us? Yes, um, it says, let me see, let me open up on it. It says, you and your immediate family members are expected to be on a list to be allowed to enter Egypt in coming days. The Palestinian Customs Authority published a list of those permitted to cross into Egypt on November 2nd, and we believe they will do so again daily. We urge you to consult that list, and if you find your name and the names of your immediate family members on that list, 
please go to the Rafah crossing on the appropriate day with your U.S. passports and other valid travel documents. We expect there to be many people at the crossing, and there is likely to be some confusion at exit and entry points. Please be prepared to wait in line. I know you've described, Lena, these last three and a half weeks or so as so scary and frightening, and that's totally understandable. How are you and your family holding up? We are holding up um, with hope and faith that we will be able to leave. That's one thing. And another thing is an end to this massacre, to this war, to the war against innocence, because these are innocent lives that are... and the destruction of homes, the whole city, buildings, um, hospitals, the third most oldest church, everything's getting this demolished. It's leveled down. It's evil and so sad because so many lives are being taken. So we're just holding up with well, good, patience good luck to you, Lena. deep breath. I was just saying, Lena, good luck to you. Good luck to your family. Please stay in touch with us. Let us know if there's anything you you think we can help uh, you do. Uh, We want to see you get out of there with your family as soon as possible. Lena Busiso, appreciate it very much. Thank you, Wolf. And just ahead, funding for Israel appears to be a popular measure among both parties in the U.S. Congress. So why is it now in danger of becoming a major showdown? That's just ahead here in the Situation Room. A potential showdown over aid for Israel is brewing between Senate and House Republicans. The Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today not backing down from his insistence that the National Security Supplemental Bill must include funding to address all global threats, not just Israel. That's a direct opposition to the newly elected House Speaker, Mike Johnson. CNN's Manu Raju is up on Capitol Hill for us. Manu, what specifically are we hearing from McConnell and other Senate leaders? Well, they met behind closed doors, the full Senate Republican conference with Speaker Mike Johnson today, the first time they have met since Johnson was elevated to become Speaker. And Johnson made clear his position that he does not believe a bill that would include aid to Israel and aid to Ukraine could pass his chamber. He says that those two things must be separated. As the House plans to move on its own plan, $14.3 billion in aid to to Israel, punt on the issue of Ukraine, Johnson told colleagues that he would be open to moving on issues of Ukraine, but tying that to stricter border security measures, border new immigration policies. That's something that Democrats almost certainly will not accept. Democrats also are not going to accept the Israel plan because Johnson is advancing spending cuts to the IRS, something that Democrats in the Senate say is an absolute non-starter, raising questions about how any of this can be addressed. Now, in talking to a number of senators on both sides of the aisle, many of them are aligning with Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and saying, it is time to address Ukraine now. Otherwise, they fear there will never be an opportunity to pass more aid to Ukraine and it could slip away to Russia. The world. Or the Senate's going to do We're going to put together a package that addresses the national security concerns of our own nation, border security, uh, continue the fight against Russia by helping Ukraine mm-hmm. and help Israel and help Israel now because we're running out of time. This will be the end of the Ukrainian effort to stop Putin's aggression. Uh, It is not just another political decision. 
It is a life or death decision, and I hope that uh, Speaker Johnson will reflect on that. But even Republicans in the Senate are divided about the question about how to deal with Ukraine. A number of conservative members believe that Senator McConnell is making the wrong decision in breaking with the new House Speaker, instead calling on him to align himself with the Speaker and deal with Ukraine at a later date. McConnell so far is rejecting those calls and aligning himself with the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, as they try to cobble together a much bigger package, a broader package, something similar to $105 billion emergency national security package that the White House has proposed. The Senate could move as soon as next week. But, Wolf, the question is, if the House passes its plan tomorrow just dealing with Israel, that was no chance of passing the Senate. What will happen then? Because if the Senate moves on its own proposal that has no chance of passing the House, the two chambers could be at a stalemate, leaving Israel and Ukraine waiting for money at this critical moment. And just with major uncertainty here, Wolf, how any of this can be resolved. Wolf. Manu Raju up on Capitol Hill in Washington. Thank you very much. Coming up, there's more news we're following. That student arrested for allegedly making anti-Semitic threats against Cornell University's Jewish community makes his first court appearance. I'll discuss that story and the growing number of anti-Semitic threats in the United States with the head of the Anti-Defamation League. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. A 21-year-old student has been arrested for making anti-Semitic online threats against the Jewish community at Cornell University. He did not enter a plea during his first appearance in federal court today. This is happening as the number of anti-Semitic threats is clearly on the rise across the United States since the Hamas attacks against Israel. For more on this uh, story, I'm joined now by Jonathan Greenblatt. He's the CEO and National Director of the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us, as you heard. And as you well know, this Cornell University student is now in custody in connection with a series of threats against Jewish students at Cornell. This comes as uh, the FBI Director Christopher Wray is warning of attacks from in individuals inspired by Hamas. Before this, he appeared to be, this college student, he appeared to be a normal college student at Cornell. Does that make this incident even more disturbing? Yeah, look, this incident is terrifying. The idea that someone would post to a message board at an Ivy League university that he wants to, quote, slit the throats of Jews, that he wants to rape Jewish women for what's happening in Gaza. I mean, look, Jews are no more collectively responsible for what's happening in Israel than Asian Americans would be for what's happening in China or any ethnicity would be for what's happening in another part of the world. Anti-Zionism, which regards all Jewish people and Israel as illegitimate, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, Wolf, and it creates the conditions in which these kinds of things happen, which Jewish people and, the, and Israelis are dehumanized and demonized, so people think they can say these kinds of things with impunity. The FBI director, Christopher Wray, is also warning that anti-Semitism in the United States is reaching what he calls, and I'm quoting him now, historic levels since the October 7th Hamas attack against Israel. What worries you most about this alarming increase? Look, I talked to you almost five years to the day, Wolf, about the shooting in Pittsburgh, which at the time was the bloodiest attack on Jewish people in the history of the United States. It still is. And that happened by far-right ring, you know, white supremacist. And now we have these 
hard left radical anti-Zionists threatening to kill and attack Jews, celebrating the worst massacre against the Jewish people since the Holocaust. It is outrageous. And I think Chris Ray is right. The conditions are here which something explosive could happen. But the way that we can stop it is if we move from a cancel culture to a consequence culture. You post death threats against Jewish students, you should have a knock on your door from the FBI and you should get arrested. By the way, as we saw at Harvard yesterday where Jewish students weren't allowed to walk across the quad. They were stopped and harassed by militant pro-Hamas demonstrators. I'm sorry, if you harass Jewish students, if you incite violence against them, you should be expelled from the university. No questions asked. And if you make it difficult, if you bully students because they're Jewish, if you threaten them because they're from Israel, there should be a zero tolerance policy on such intolerance in our universities, period, full stop. As you know, the United States has been viewed as a refuge for so many Jews in the wake of the Holocaust. That, that was certainly the case, by the way, for my family. Has the recent rise in anti-Semitism in the U.S. shaken that sense for American Jews? Well, I will tell you this. Jews are certainly concerned, but they are also more united than I've ever seen. I came, my family came here. My grandfather was a Holocaust survivor from Germany. My wife and her family were political refugees from Iran. My family's escaped persecution to come here to this country. And now to see the rise of anti-Semitism, we've seen a nearly 400% increase in incidents in just the past two and a half weeks, Wolf. It's shocking. And yet, I will tell you this, Wolf, we aren't going anywhere. If these anti-Zionists and these anti-Semites think they're going to intimidate us, they've got another thing coming because we are going to push back reclaim our universities, push back, reclaim the public space, and we will win to make sure America is as good to us as it's always been in the years ahead. Jonathan Greenblatt of the ADL, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right, coming up, Israeli forces are advancing toward Gaza City right now as the country comes under a lot of criticism for a blast that hit Gaza's largest refugee camp for a second straight day. We're live in the region with all the late-breaking developments. Happening now, breaking news, new devastation and fear at a Gaza refugee camp rocked by a second Israeli airstrike in two days. Israeli forces defending the attacks as key to the war against Hamas as they're claiming significant new progress on the ground. Also tonight, the first civilian evacuations from Gaza are now underway with Americans among the hundreds of people fleeing through the Rafah border crossing into Egypt. We'll get an update on who got out and who may escape the war zone next. Plus, significant new developments in two cases against Donald Trump. His son, Donald Trump Jr., testifying in the civil fraud trial in New York. And in Florida, new indications that the Mar-a-Lago classified documents trial may be delayed. Welcome to our viewers in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer in Tel Aviv, Israel, and you're in the Situation Room. This is CNN Breaking News. We're live in Tel Aviv following all the breaking news on Israel's war against Hamas and urgent 
urgent new efforts to get civilians out of danger in Gaza as bombs fall and ground troops advance. Our correspondents are standing by with new information about the military operation and the evacuations. First, let's go to CNN's Jeremy Diamond. He's in Eshkelon, Israel for us. Jeremy, on the heels of a second airstrike that rocked a Gaza refugee camp, Israel says it's making gains in the ground war. Give us the latest. Uh, that's right. Well, five days after Israel launched its ground offensive in Gaza, uh, the Israeli military announcing that it has breached Hamas's northern defensive lines in Gaza. The country's military says that it has dropped uh, more than uh, 11, uh, sorry, struck more than 11,000 targets in just the last three and a half weeks. But amid those strikes, more questions tonight, Wolf, about how Israel is striking these targets and the civilian casualties that have also resulted. <laughs> Tonight, a top Israeli commander says his forces are closing in on Gaza City, Hamas's stronghold in the Gaza Strip. We are deep in the Strip, at the gates of Gaza City. In the last five days, we have dismantled a lot of the abilities of Hamas. We have attacked strategic positions, all the explosive abilities, its underground facilities and other systems. Five days after Israel launched its ground offensive in Gaza, Israeli forces are advancing towards Gaza City from three different directions. In the north, Israeli armor and infantry have been spotted advancing from both ends of the strip. Israeli tanks also appear to be closing in from the south. CNN geolocated this tank at the strategic Netzarim junction, on the main road into Gaza City. Israel is also moving some of its artillery closer to Gaza. Until recently, this field was filled with Israeli artillery positions. You can see these mounds where howitzer guns or other types of artillery would dig in. And now, as Israeli forces move closer into Gaza, those artillery positions are also moving closer to support the troops on the ground. Now all that remains are these boxes of munitions, artillery fuses used by the forces that were here. The question now is how deep Israeli forces will move into Gaza. The only way to get to what Hamas has built over a decade inside the Gaza Strip, the only way is through a ground operation. For now at least, Israel's military relying on its devastating air power to strike in the heart of urban areas. For the second day in a row, Israeli jets striking the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp flattening apartment buildings, killing tens of people and wounding hundreds, according to the director of the nearby Indonesian hospital. The IDF said it struck a Hamas command and control complex in Jabalia, killing Hamas militants. But civilians also clearly among the casualties, including children rushed out of the rubble. And Wolf, tonight, the director of the Indonesian hospital in Gaza tells CNN that many of the injured in that strike today in the Jabali refugee camp are women and children. Israel, of course, maintains that Hamas is to blame for using civilians as human shields. And meanwhile, tonight, Wolf, we're also learning that 16 Israeli soldiers have died so far as a result of this ground incursion. Wolf. All right, Jeremy Diamond in Ashkelon, Israel for us. Jeremy, thanks for that report uh, right now. 
I want to go to the opening of the Egypt-Gaza border crossing that has now allowed hundreds of civilians to evacuate. This is very significant. CNN's Melissa Bell is following this story for us. She's joining us from Cairo, Egypt. Melissa, bring us up to speed on these evacuations and what happens next. Many hundreds of foreign and dual nationals already through the Rafa crossing wolf, as you said, and here safely in Egypt, many of them on their way to Cairo, even as we speak amongst them, at least two American physicians that we understand were in Gaza to work with Palestinians. They found themselves on the wrong side of the border uh, on uh, October 7th. They are amongst those who've been allowed out. But this is a comprehensive deal, we understand, from American officials that will allow all the many thousands of foreign and dual nationals to get out over the course of the coming days. A tired smile and a wave from one of the lucky few finally allowed to leave Gaza since the war began. These families, just some of the first foreign and dual nationals finally permitted through the Rafah crossing into Egypt on Wednesday, the result of a deal brokered by Qatar between Israel, Hamas, Egypt and the United States that will allow all foreign and dual nationals to leave the besieged enclave. Also allowed to leave under the deal, the first Palestinians, 81 of the most severely wounded, those desperate enough for urgent surgical intervention taken one by one in a convoy of ambulances to a field hospital set up a few miles away and to other hospitals in northern Egypt. Large crowds of foreign nationals had been massing at the border after hearing at the start of the conflict that they'd be allowed out. Families desperately checking to see if they were some of those lucky enough finally to get through. I'm an American living in Gaza. We heard that the crossing was open, but unfortunately we discovered that it was open for specific nationalities at the moment. And we had to turn back because the cellular network was down and we weren't aware that there was a list. We hope to see our names on the list tomorrow or the next day. As the only crossing from Gaza to anywhere other than Israel, all eyes had been on Rafah ever since the total siege of the Strip was announced by Israel. It is the only way in and out now, and what's gone in has been painfully little. A further 20 trucks arriving on Wednesday, a drop in the ocean, say aid organizations given the needs inside. For some here, it's been days or even weeks of waiting and praying. With ever-dwindling supplies and under the constant fear of Israeli strikes, even here in the south where civilians had been told by the IDF to evacuate, nowhere in Gaza is safe. So finally, for a small few, a chance to leave and live again. There are difficult days ahead, to be clear, Wolf, for all of those many foreign and dual nationals uh, who remain trapped inside, not least because of the communications problems inside the Gaza Strip. Just finding out that you're eligible to get out, making your way to that Rafa crossing can be logistically difficult under the circumstances. And bear in mind that this is 
a part of the world that is under constant IDF bombardment. Uh, this was nonetheless a huge breakthrough, the fruit of difficult negotiations that went on very much behind the scenes. Uh, it came as a huge surprise to everyone watching the Rafa crossing over the course of the last few days. But it does show us that those negotiations are happening and that they can bear their fruit despite all the difficulties. We understand that Hamas had wanted to get some of its wounded fire, fire, uh, fighters out as a result of this deal. That was clearly a non-starter for Israel. We understand also that Egypt was extremely concerned about who was going to be coming on to its territory. It's been very wary of the idea of refugees coming into Egypt. Also the idea that this conflict might be used as an excuse for the wholesale displacement of the Palestinian inhabitants of Gaza towards the Sinai. And yet, despite all of those objections and concerns about the screening process, it is happening and it appears will continue to happen, Wolf, over the coming days. Melissa Bell reporting from Cairo, Egypt for us. Melissa, thank you very much. Joining us now here in Tel Aviv, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren, ambassador, thanks so much for joining us. Israel's getting a lot of criticism for these, the bombings of this huge refugee camp in Gaza right now. Do you think it's really necessary given the civilian casualties that are developing? Always good to be with you, Wolf. I'm listening to all these reports and, and they, they're, they're heartbreaking, they are. No one wants to see innocent people suffer. Uh, and it's important to note that in addition that the, the foreign nationals are getting through the Rafa crossing, that's good, we think. But, uh, you know, let's not forget we got uh, to over 240 hostages uh, in Gaza. And we don't, many people don't even know, their families don't even know where they are. Tomorrow I'm visiting a gentleman named Gilad Kornberg down south in a kibbutz. And uh, his son, his daughter, his two grandkids are, are hostages. He doesn't know where they are. And we can't forget that. So it's good that the foreign nationals are getting out of Gaza. What about our nationals? And they're still under in the tunnels of, of Hamas. As for the international repercussions, what can I say? It's to be expected. It's happened in every round of fighting we've had. Uh, we know that we get a little bit of sympathy at the beginning. Sympathy at the beginning. If we're getting, you know, rocketed, there's a certain amount of sympathy. If we had 1,400 of our citizens massacred and butchered, we get a certain degree of sympathy. At the end of the day, and it's not just a line wolf. When we say Hamas is responsible, Hamas is responsible. Now they talk about the densely populated Jabalia refugee camp. Why is it densely populated? We've told the Palestinians to move to the south now three weeks ago. All right, it's densely populated because Hamas wants it to be densely populated. It wants to use this population as a human shield. So we get the precisely the type of condemnations that Israel's getting now. It's using, you know, it's sort of, it's using this human shield as a way of denying us the right to defend ourselves and to get international calls for a ceasefire. And I've said to you before, ceasefire for us is death. Ceasefire that means if we don't defeat Hamas decisively, really uproot it and defeat it, this city, this country can't exist. No one can go back to their homes. We're finished. But the, the pictures that we're seeing of the devastation in this refugee camp, the kids, the elderly people, it's pretty devastating. It's devastating. Sure, it's devastating. But you have to ask yourself, okay, who's responsible for it? It's, we asked these people to leave to get out of the way of fire. Hamas, we've had reports that they're being kept at gunpoint from running away. So who bears that responsibility? If Hamas is in the Jabalia refugee camp, it's, if it's under these neighborhoods, we have no choice but to attack in there. And we hope that the Palestinian civilians can get out of the way. We hope that Hamas won't stop them from leaving. At the end of the day, this is about 
not just our national security, it's about our national survival. But you know that Israel has told these Palestinians in northern Gaza to get out and move to the south. But Israel is also bombing various locations in the south as well. And I, you know, I say I've looked into that, and I'm, you know, I'm not a spokesman for the government anymore. I, I was curious about it, and what I found out was that, uh, that Hamas is operating in the south as well. And it's again hiding behind the civilian population. So if Hamas is shooting from inside that population, again, we're going to have no choice but to go where Hamas is fighting us from. Um, you were here today. We were hit by rockets today in Tel Aviv. Uh, we have to stop this. No country in the world would allow a million people behind us to be under rocket fire. So what I hear you saying is that maybe not a good idea for these people to go from the north to the south and leave their homes. If, the, if this war is still developing in the south, they're not going to be safe there either. Well, I think the safest place to be relatively is in the south, away from the north, because the major fighting is going to be in Gaza City. But it's true, all of Gaza is, is under the control of Hamas. And where Hamas is, Israel's going to have to defend itself against Hamas. And we will try our utmost, as we always try our utmost, to avoid civilian casualties. You know, we leaflet, we give the, S, we give the text messages, we, we do the knock-knock you know, system where you send a little, little rocket onto the top of a house that doesn't explode, but lets the people in the house know that the house is going to be hit. Get them away to the best degree uh, possible. It is a war. It is brutal. But again, we have no choice. We have to defend this country. If we don't defeat Hamas, we can't be sitting here, you and me. Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. And just ahead, there's more news. We're following all the latest developments on the ground in Israel uh, as the refugee camp hit, by yesterday, hit yesterday uh, during Israel's airstrike is struck once again today. And other news we're following back in the United States, Donald Trump Jr. testifies as a defendant in a civil fraud trial. What he said under oath in court, a lot more coming up right here in the Situation Room. We'll have much more of the breaking news coming up uh, right here from the Middle East. I'm in Israel. But first, there's important news back in the United States as well. Donald Trump Jr. testified today under oath in the civil fraud trial against him, his family, and their businesses. The former president's eldest son is facing very serious questions about his involvement in the financial documents right at the center of this lawsuit. CNN's Kara Scannell is outside the courthouse in New York City for us. Kara, so what did we hear from Donald Trump Jr.? Well, well, Donald Trump Jr. took the stand late this afternoon, and he denied having any involvement in the preparation of the financial statements in this case. These are the same statements the judge has already found to be fraudulent. So Trump was asked specifically about this, his role, if he had any involvement in the preparation. He said, I did not. The accountants worked on that. That's what we pay them for. Now, he was specifically asked about 2017. That's the year that he became the trustee of his father's trust when he became president. And that's the first time that Donald Trump Jr. signed the statement certifying that they were accurate. Now, Trump Jr. testified that he may have provided information to the internal accountants who were working on these statements, but he said he didn't know that what he gave them would be used in the financial statement. So further distancing himself in any way from the preparation. Now, during the about 90 minutes of testimony on the stand, he answered most questions directly. He even joked with the judge who asked him to slow down when he was answering questions. Trump Jr. saying that, I apologize, Your Honor, I moved to Florida, but I kept the New York pace. Now, he's expected to return to the stand tomorrow morning. His testimony will be followed by his brother, Eric Trump, and then former President Donald Trump is set to testify on Monday. The state expects to wrap its case on Wednesday following the testimony of Ivanka Trump. Wolf? 
Karis Connell reporting for us from New York. Thank you very much for that update. And joining us now, CNN Chief Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed and CNN Senior Legal Analyst Ellie Honig. To both of you, thanks so much for joining us. Ellie, what is the key issue prosecutors are trying to get at uh, with Donald Trump Jr.? And is he taking a risk by testifying and not taking the Fifth Amendment? So, Wolf, the attorney general's core allegation here is that Donald Trump Jr. and some of his family members intentionally and knowingly overinflated the value of their assets. And what I think is really crucial to note about the testimony that Donald Trump Jr. just gave hours ago is he did not try to argue that these valuations were actually accurate, that they were legitimate. Instead, as Kara just said, he tried to argue I didn't really know about them. I wasn't part of this. He tried to distance himself from the actual valuations. Now, there certainly is a risk with taking the stand here. Donald Trump Jr. would have had the option of taking the Fifth Amendment. This is a civil case, but he still could say, I refuse to testify because my testimony could be used against me. He's decided not to do that. And so now, as a result, everything that he's testifying to is fair game for prosecutors to consider. Now, prosecutors have looked at this case. They've chosen not to charge it as a criminal case thus far, but that could change based on Donald Trump Jr.'s testimony. So there's an inherent risk in taking the stand here. Yeah, he's testifying under oath. Uh, Paula Reed, uh, Donald Trump's attorneys, by the way, were also in court in Florida today in that classified documents case, trying to push back the start of the upcoming trial. Tell our viewers what happened. Well, Wolf, it appears that the judge overseeing that case, Trump appointee Eileen Cannon, appears open to the idea of moving that case down in the calendar. Now, right now, he is scheduled to go to trial here in Washington, D.C., with the special counsel's first case carving election subversion in March of next year. Then the classified documents case is scheduled to go to trial in May of next year. And Trump's lawyers have argued, look, they need more time to prepare for a case like that. They're currently juggling the civil case in New York. They have the first criminal case, then they have this. They say they need more time. And the judge signaled today that she is open to possibly postponing this. And right now, the Trump legal team, this is their number one goal, to get this pushed back until after the 2024 election. So this is a big test for the judge, and we're waiting for her ruling. Ellie, as Paula just said, this is potentially a big development if the start of this trial is pushed back, possibly until after the presidential election next year. Is there a good basis for Judge Cannon's concerns? Well, Wolf, I think there is. I understand that there's great interest in seeing Donald Trump tried in as many of these cases as possible before the election among the public and certainly among prosecutors. However, the judge also has to be aware of and protect any criminal defendant's constitutional rights to due process to fully prepare for trial. And if we look at the calendar, as Paula just laid out, the first federal case, the one in D.C. about election subversion, that's starting in March of 2024. And I think Judge Cannon's concern in Florida is you can't make a criminal defendant go right from one case that's going to take two full months and then immediately start this next case because he does have a right to prepare separately for each case, which is unrelated to one another. So it wouldn't at all surprise me to see Judge Cannon push her case back, given all the circumstances here. Very interesting. Paula, turning back to this civil trial against the Trump Organization in New York, Ivanka Trump is appealing the order for her to testify in the case. What do we know about how this is likely to play out? 
Well, it'll be interesting to see if she does end up taking the stand uh, midway through next week. She's been trying to avoid having to testify in this case, noting that she is no longer a defendant in this case. And the fact that she left the Trump Organization and went to Washington before the conduct that has been alleged in this case. But having three, the three older Trump children testify, well, this is a reminder that even though this is mostly about penalties in a civil case, this is a case that, unlike the criminal prosecutions, has direct consequences for the former president's family. And it's just about as much um, as about what she would say on the stand as it is about how the former president will react. And when it comes to his three older children, it is likely Ivanka who could elicit the strongest reaction or outburst from the former president. Interesting indeed. Paula Reed, Elihone, guys, thank you very, very much. The breaking news continues next here in the Middle East with another live report from our war correspondents covering this dramatic development after that second Israeli strike on a Gaza refugee camp. You're watching The Situation Room. We're live from Tel Aviv. This hour, the full scope of the deaths and destruction at a Gaza refugee camp remain unclear after Israel confirmed it was behind a blast that rocked the camp for a second time in two days. We're also following the evacuations out of Gaza into Egypt, the first civilians allowed to escape the fighting, including some Americans. Lots going on. CNN's Ben Wiedemann is following all the breaking news. He's joining us from his post in Beirut, Lebanon right now. So, Ben, what's the latest? Update our viewers. Yeah, as far as the, the Jabalia refugee camp goes, today Israel struck for a second time uh, after Tuesday that refugee camp. The Israelis said that they struck a Hamas command and control uh, center, but the director of the Indonesian hospital nearby uh, reported to CNN uh, that as a result of that Israeli strike on the camp, uh, at least 80 people were killed. He said most of the casualties in that strike were women and children. And the UN Human Rights Office is saying that the strikes on Jabalia, the most crowded of the eight refugee camps in Gaza, could amount to a war crime. Now, as far as the Israeli ground operation goes, uh, the Israeli military is saying that they have breached the Hamas defenses in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. Uh, so far, 16 Israeli soldiers have been killed since the ground incursion began on Friday. But they are, they do seem to be running into stiff resistance. Uh, they're basically gaining ground in the open area uh, just to, on the northern edge of the Gaza Strip. And what we're seeing is that Hamas is putting up stiff resistance. Uh, Hamas published today video of one of their drones dropping a bomb on a gathering of Israeli soldiers. In another video, you see them popping out of tunnels and ambushing a column of Israeli army. Now, we heard today again from the Iranian foreign minister who warned of possible action by the so-called axis of resistance, which Iran leads and includes Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the Houthis, and various militias in Syria and Iraq. He said that if the war in Gaza continues, the resistance 
will make a decision on another surprise action. Not clear what that is. We may get an indication, however, on Friday when the head of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, makes a much-anticipated speech. Wolf? Ben Wiedemann in Beirut, Lebanon for us. Ben, thank you very much. Uh, joining us now, Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado. He's a key member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us. As you know, the IDF says this second blast at the Jabalia refugee camp today was from an Israeli airstrike. Scores of innocent civilians, we are told, have been killed. The IDF says Hamas terrorists were hiding among them. What's your response to all of this? Wolf, we know that Hamas must be destroyed. It absolutely cannot be allowed to continue. The manner in which Hamas is destroyed is extremely important. If there's anything that I learned in 20 years of the global war on terror, fighting three times in Iraq and Afghanistan, is that you cannot destroy a terrorist organization with military means alone. Uh, so the, the conduct of those operations becomes just as important as the goal itself. So a military objective, uh, in this case destroying a Hamas commander or command post, doesn't necessarily mean that you can strike that objective. The presence of civilians, the, president, the presence of refugees, of innocents, fundamentally will change in any given instance how you engage and even if you can engage a target. When I was in Iraq and Afghanistan, we made that decision all, of the, all the time. You can have a valid military objective that you do not strike at that time and in a certain way because of the presence of civilians, and that's really fundamental here. So are you concerned, Congressman, that Israel isn't doing enough to avoid civilian casualties? I've been calling for a humanitarian pause here because I think we need time to assess the right way to destroy Hamas. Uh, that I think we should establish humanitarian corridors. I think we should allow uh, for the flow of refugees from North Gaza into South Gaza. And there should be a, a more uh, a sustained counter-terrorist operation that will destroy Hamas but make a priority the protection of innocent civilians uh, in the, the two, over two million Palestinians who are also victims of Hamas in this situation. So uh, I, I think we need more time to figure out how we do this the right way that actually can accomplish the goals of destroying Hamas without making the situation worse. As you know, Congressman, for the first time, foreign nationals are finally making their way out of Gaza, including at least two Americans today. Do you think the Biden administration is acting quickly enough on this front? I do. I think the Biden administration is working on every front, uh, the intelligence front, the diplomatic front, engaging with our partners, engaging with our allies, and doing everything possible to bring American nationals, American citizens to safety, which they have done since day one of this administration. This administration has actually done a remarkable job of bringing uh, hostages back from Iran, uh, of making a priority of repatriating American citizens, and this is certainly no exception here. The new House Speaker, Mike Johnson's Israel funding bill, as you know, gives $14.3 billion to Israel, but rescinds that same amount of money from the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. You've indicated you will not support this, but what will you do if the Republicans don't budge? I'm not going to support this bill. It's a horrible, horrible bill. It's horrible for Israel because it actually doesn't have any humanitarian aid funding. Uh, so like I've long said, there's no uh, sole military solution to this. We have to couple humanitarian aid and protection of civilians with the military response. And if we don't do that, neither one of those will be a success. So there has to be humanitarian funding. But they have politicized this effort 
to support Israel in, in a way that is unacceptable. It sets a precedent that these national security supplementals will be subject to politics in a way that we never have subjected them to politics before. And I'm just not going to stand for it. I'm going to stand up and say there's a bipartisan way of doing this in a way that we have always done in the past, uh, and we're not going to allow this to be politicized. Congressman Jason Crow, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And just ahead, why uh, inflammatory language from Donald Trump has proven to be a double-edged sword for the former president, both in the courtroom and out there on the campaign trail. Stay with us. You're in the Situation Room. We're following the multiple court cases of America's most prominent defendant, Donald J. Trump including his son's testimony in the civil fraud trial against their family business. Trump's legal proceedings are giving the nation a window into his mindset as he campaigns to return to the White House. CNN's Jeff Zeleny has more on this important story for us. Jeff, in court and out there on the campaign trail, Trump is clearly on the attack. Well, there's no question. This has become a campaign of vengeance, much more uh, sharper and violent uh, language and rhetoric than we saw during his first presidential campaigns and maybe costing him in the courtroom. But on the campaign trail, it's anything but. The inflammatory rhetoric that's gotten Donald Trump into hot water in the courtroom. This judge is a very partisan judge. Is the fuel of his political campaign. You have to get out. And you have to fight like hell because these are dirty players. More than ever before, the former president is waging a campaign of vengeance, attacking judges, going after prosecutors, and raising the specter of violence. We will immediately stop all of the pillaging and theft. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot. In his third presidential bid, retribution has become a far louder rallying cry. He suggested Mark Milley, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, should be executed for treason. He's joked about the brutal attack on former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. He's implored supporters to drive away his enemies. 2024 is our final battle. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers. Get them all out of our government. While Trump's legal challenges are inexplicably linked with his presidential campaign, the disconnect is jarring. Even major court developments, like a tearful guilty plea from his former lawyer. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. Haven't changed the view of many loyal Trump supporters. There's a lot more than you think that um, are in favor of Trump and felt that the last election was stolen and um, we just want, you know, we just want what's ours. Lori Scroggins saw the former president this week in Iowa. She's unbothered by criticism and dismissive of his Republican rivals, whom she believes should step aside. They're just nothing but a distraction and an annoyance, like a mosquito or a fly. You just want to, yeah, poof them away and let's get down to the meat, the real politics. Let's get down to what Trump has to say. And Trump has a lot to say, stoking anger and rallying supporters to his defense. I promise you this. If you put me back in the White House, their reign will be over and America will be a free nation once again. 
So some of these violent comments and the rhetoric certainly comes into a sharp review, Wolf, when some of the very uh, merits of these court cases are about January 6th and the rhetoric that led to that violence. Some of his supporters have acknowledged being uh, led to the Capitol that day because of his orders. Now, of course, most of uh, Trump supporters are not violent, but certainly some of these messages could cause concern. But of course, his family is front and center in a different courtroom, this one in uh, New York for the civil case. He's expected next week. Wolf. Jeff Zellamy reporting. Excellent report. Thank you very much, Jeff, for that. Coming up, a 21-year-old Cornell University student who was arrested for allegedly making anti-Semitic threats against the school's Jewish community makes his first court appearance. We'll have details. That's next. A man has been arrested in connection with a series of online anti-Semitic threats against Cornell University's Jewish community. The suspect, who's a student at the Ivy League school, made his first uh, appearance in federal court today where he did not enter a plea. Meanwhile, the number of threats against Jewish, Muslim, and Arab American communities in the United States has been on the rise since the Hamas attacks against Israel. CNN's Brian Todd is monitoring these developments for us. Brian, what's the latest? Wolf, tonight, officials from the U.S. Attorney General to the governor of Virginia and leaders across America are collectively sounding an alarm. Anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents inside the U.S., specifically pegged to the Israel-Hamas war, are simply getting out of control. After several days of fear gripping the Cornell University campus in upstate New York, an arrest. A 21-year-old junior at Cornell, Patrick Day, charged in connection with threatening to kill Jewish students. Prosecutors say in online posts, Day threatened to bring an assault rifle to campus, to shoot up a mainly kosher dining hall, to stab Jewish students, to throw them off cliffs. I can't imagine what would go through the mind of someone like that. Just, first of all, you're making threats on like this, like this random website. Like, why would you do that? I mean, I've seen general anti-Semitic sentiment, things like that, but they have not only a direct threat, but a direct threat to a building that I personally go to and eat at and see friends at, like, that was really scary and that was really, it was bad. Patrick Day has not entered a plea. His parents told the New York Post they believe their son is innocent. They say he struggles with depression and never had a history of violence. But in this climate, New York's governor is in no mood for lenience. I want to make an example and say, as I said on Monday when I told those students, if you do this, you will be caught and you will be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Since the Israel-Hamas war began on October 7th, tensions have boiled across the U.S. On college campuses, at private homes, businesses, a dramatic spike, officials say, in anti-Semitic and Islamophobic incidents, including assaults, acts of harassment and vandalism. And one group says, in cases of harassment against Muslims in America... Many cases do go unreported for fear of retaliation or backlash. The actual number is likely much higher. Why have incidents spiked on college campuses since the start of the Israel-Hamas war? College campuses is where students are using their voices for the first time. They're politically active, often they're ready to vote. And so this comes with the territory of university campuses. What we can say about this particular incident is folks are feeling touched on both sides due to their identities. But it's seemingly everywhere. A swastika was spray-painted on a high school football field in Virginia. In Minnesota and New York State, displays of pictures of Israelis taken hostage have been damaged or torn down. 
A top Muslim advocacy group in New Jersey says the atmosphere for Muslims there is reminiscent of the post-9-11 era. Muslims have been fired from their jobs posting about Palestine. Hijabs have been pulled off in broad daylight here in New Jersey. Students have been called terrorists by a public school teachers and parents. And we have this just in. The Biden administration has just announced it will develop what it calls a national strategy to counter Islamophobia in the U.S. A White House statement saying in part that, quote, for too long, Muslims in America and those perceived to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. Wolf. Brian Todd reporting for us. Brian, thanks very much. And we'll have more news right after this. Breaking news, the legendary basketball coach Bob Knight has died. He was 83 years old. Joining us on the phone right now is USA Today columnist Christine Brennan. Uh, Bob Knight was very, very successful, Christine, but also a little bit controversial. Tell us about that. That's right, Wolf. Um, He did win three national titles at Indiana, and that's really the program and the school that he is known for, an iconic career uh, at Indiana, uh, coaching the men's basketball team. They're the last team, by the way, uh, the men's team, to go undefeated, 32-0, and uh, last D1 Division One men's team. But that was back in 75 and 76. But also um, the temper, the flares of emotion were legendary. And a lot of uh, his fans loved that. When he threw the chair across the floor uh, against Purdue back in 1985, they cheered him on for his iconic temper and the way he handled things, uh, you know, a cult figure in every way at Indiana and the Big Ten Wolf. But but then things got serious. Um, there was a video of him choking a player, and then he allegedly grabbed a student on campus in the fall of 2000. He was fired. And so that same temper, that same violence, uh, that, that, or that, that propensity for alleged violence, the things that uh, made him so appealing to so many obviously ended up ending his career at Indiana, but then he went on to Texas Tech and he coached the men's team, won 138 games there, retiring for good in 2008, Wolf. Truly a legendary basketball coach and coached the U.S. Olympic team, the basketball team, won the gold medal that time, as I remember, and I'm sure you do as well. That's right, 1984, Los Angeles, and uh, yes, uh, just a great coach, a great tactician, the, the young men who played for him still stand by him, uh, and most of them do, and swear by the way that he coached them, uh, the love they have for him, the camaraderie. You know, you know, Wolf, you, you follow sports uh, as well as anyone, and that tough coaching technique that was especially um, in its heyday at this time that Bobby Knight was also at the peak of his career. What coaches could get away with then, uh, that are just is not allowed now. It, our scrutiny, of course, our concerns about the mental health of athletes, the abuse of athletes. But uh, Bobby Knight was all that. He was able to be that old school coach and uh, also drive those beautiful life lessons to those young men. There was good. There was a lot of good there, even as he obviously was embroiled in controversy time and again. And of course, Mike Krzyzewski, uh the, the great um, coaches and the names that he crossed paths with at Army. Of course, Indiana, the great men that he coached there, even at Texas Tech. So a legendary career, even as, as we said, he was a very controversial figure. 
Our deepest, deepest condolences to his family. Christine Brennan, thank you very much for joining us. And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. I'm Wolf Blitzer in Tel Aviv, Israel. You're in the Situation Room. Aaron Burnett out front starts right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.